constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and BigBeacon.org is an independent nonprofit organized in 2012 to help transform higher education, particularly engineering and professional education. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can uh, Tweet about the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show at hashtag Big Beacon. And today we were just really pleased to have a former guest return to the show, Dr. Mark Golston. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Well, thanks for having me back. It looks like I didn't wear out my welcome, Dave. No, you absolutely didn't. And uh, the things that you that you uh, study and talk about and and help people with are are we think some of the most important things for helping bring about a different uh, culture in higher education. Uh, um, and Mark, you've um, just had a, a fascinating career and, and uh, you're a trained clinical psychiatrist. You're a thought leader on listening and empathy, um, best-selling author and successful clinical and corporate practices. And you're doing some just amazing stuff that I hope we get into. Um, that we had you back on the show in uh, 2015. It's been a couple of years and, and, um, not going to go back through that show. Listeners can go back and to that bo- podcast. It was uh, one of our favorites. But but what's new? Uh, what one, two, or three things uh, will help bring our listeners up to date about what you've been doing for the last couple of years? Well, I have a personal mission called Healing the World, One Conversation at a Time, because uh, as a former suicide specialist uh, earlier in my practice, Uh, I saw a number of suicidal people because one of my earliest mentors was a psychologist named Dr. Ed Schneidman, and he basically was, I think, the pioneer in the study and intervention with suicidal people. And so he would refer me still suicidal people who needed to be discharged uh, from the inpatient wards at UCLA. Uh, And uh, they weren't acutely suicidal, but you couldn't keep them there forever. And so I think what happened is I learned to get through suicidal people literally uh, by, and I don't know how it happened, but but by going into their suicidality with them, and and they felt not just understood, they felt felt. When they felt felt, they felt less alone, and when they felt less alone, hope came in and their suicidality lessened. And so uh, what I'm excited about is, for some reason or other, the world wants more from me, which is very nice. I I don't pursue anything. And recently, I mean, really recently, like a week ago, I spoke to 500 people in Moscow, uh, put on by the Russian Federation, which is the Russian government. And in the audience was about a quarter CEOs from businesses, probably 50% managers from the Russian Federation and then a bunch of HR heads from companies. And it was about uh, listening and empathy. Um, and I'll tell you a, a, a sort of a funny yep. story. So they, yep, so they reach out to thought... Go ahead. 
No, 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 please, please continue. So they reach yeah. out to thought leaders, and thought leaders are people who have books that have done well, and I'm very humbled because my book, uh, Just Listen, has done really well around the world. I mean, became the top book in listening around the world. It's in 18 languages. And I actually like the Russian title for it, the Russian edition, and it was, it's not just listen. The Russian edition is I hear you through and through. I mean, mm. I just love the way that feels. And what was interesting is they uh, reached out to me, uh, and I'd been warned about you know dealing with the Russians and whatnot, and the event planner and the Moscow Speakers Bureau, they couldn't have been nicer, more high integrity, paid me in advance. I mean, it was yeah. just unbelievable. Uh, but what was interesting... Uh, is they said, uh, uh, I said, I'm not going to come and teach negotiation. You know, first of all, an American going to Russia to teach negotiation to the Russian Federation, that's probably, that's, you know, if you don't kill me, uh, America will. I said, I'm going to teach people how to listen so that they, um, they can, con- uh, so that their people can connect better and, and, and cooperate better and have higher performance because of that. Yep. And essentially, one of the things they said is, you're going to walk away from money? And I said, apparently I just did. And they, in, essence, in essence, they said, we haven't run into an American who would walk away from money. <laughs> I said, look, I don't want to set you up for failure. I, you know, if people are expecting me to give them some hard, cold negotiation tactics, they'll be better able to negotiate you know, by being better listeners and empathic. But I don't want to set you or myself up for failure. And then... Uh, you know, and then we stopped the call, and then two days later, they said, you know, after the call, we looked at each other, and we said, he's what Russia needs. So we yes. want to exclusively represent you in Russia and in Eastern Bloc countries, and we're sending you a multi-year visa. Oh, so um, Beautiful, yeah. So, so that was, I mean, I think that was interesting, and, and uh, also... In the presentation, um, I got the Russians involved. I mean, responding to questions, uh, following exercises, and after a, after the presentation, they said, "We haven't really seen that. You know, how did you do that?" And and I said, "Is that good?" They said, "No, that's really good. We just haven't seen it." So, so I'll just give you a funny thing, because I don't want to make the whole talk about this Russian thing, although it was a great, because there's other things I'm doing that are not quite as dramatic, but I, you might find them. So, so uh, early on, uh, one of the things uh, that I, I said, uh, um, uh, I've discovered recently, I, I love great quotes, and recently, uh, and I've had three quotes where nobody has been able to crack these three quotes from other people. And recently I've gotten to know a Dr. Sean Duperon, who you need to have on your show. And she is the founder, I think, something called Project Forgive. And it was nominated for a Nobel Prize. And she's won five or six Emmy Awards for documentaries. And so uh, uh, the quote she gave me, which still is, is astonishing, is forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Mm. And... And I realized uh, I'd been applying that for a couple of years, uh, kind of imagining my dad who passed away 22 years ago, who was kind of a numbers person. You know, he was the kind of person, if you got a 90, he'd say you can do better. Yeah. 
And of course, what I would think is, it must be junk. Uh, <laughs> but what I realized is he was a numbers person. If you get yeah. a 90, you can always do better. And so I imagined him saying to me, um, uh, you know, I'm really proud of you. He's done amazing things. And that 90 was great. And what it triggered to me, Dave, was an apology to him saying, you know, I'm sorry that I resented you. And I just felt this wave of relief and sadness, like what a waste. So early on in my presentation in Russia, I looked at the audience, really just, and, and they weren't smiling, and I said, I accept your apology. And they said, what? They looked at me like, what? I said, no, no I really mean it. I accept your apology. And they looked at each other, and I said, here's the deal. People told me, you know, when you go to Russia, uh, don't smile because, you know, they don't smile. Especially don't be a smiley American. And I said, what I realized is you're not smiling because you're upset or angry with me. It's that I haven't earned your trust yet. Uh, and, uh, and it's not that you're angry, but you're not superficial. I haven't earned your trust and I believe that if I earn your trust, because I won't, I don't hurt anyone. I don't hurt anyone anywhere. I'm not going to sell you on anything. I got paid well enough to be to come here and give you value. And if I earn your trust, and then I gain your confidence by actually giving stuff that you can use, and you know, after this is over, not only will you smile. We're going to drink vodka. You're going to drink me <laughs> under the table, and three of you, uh, three of your strongest people, are going to carry me back to my hotel room. I had them at hello. Wow. Oh, here's something else people who give presentations can use, and this Ashley also won. I said I'm going to be asking you questions, and a lot of people don't like to answer questions, and and so I'm going to ask you. I'm going to give you sort of a choice. And to the extent that you agree with it, I want you to hum in the intensity according to how much you agree with it. And what's great about going, hmm, 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 is that the person next to you doesn't know what you're doing. Your lips are closed and whatever, and you know, you're not revealing anything. So, so could you practice the hmm, hmm, hmm? And then I said to them, I said, now here's the problem, because I practiced this last night, and when I got to the, the highest, hmm, my lips started vibrating, and they went numb. So I'll give you the choice. Do you want to do the hmm, 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 or da, da, da? And they, said, and they all said, da. And so, I mean, <laughs> it, just, it just flowed from there. Yeah. Yeah, great stuff, and and uh, and and you're such a a, a master at penetrating the um, the BS of the the masks and the and the things that we hold up in front of each other, uh, it, and uh, that you that you came up with those things is is amazing. And I have and I have to say this, I I, um, I I'm a fan of your work, but I realized that I had not bought. Or read your "Get Out of Your Own Way," so I mm-hmm. I buy it and um, and I go to the first chapter and it's and and chapter one is and you just told a story about it and it's personally meaningful for me chasing after love and approval from a parent and I said oh. 
crud. Why didn't I, you know, why didn't I get this book 20 years ago? And it, you know, I took me coaching and, and uh, being trained as a coach for me to uh, get over my uh, chasing approval from, from a parent and, and the rest of, of course, uh, I have, a, have had and have afflictions that are mentioned elsewhere in the book. But, but your stuff is so, um, so important, and you just, and you said, and actually, I'm, I'm just thinking. Yes, it's important for Russia. This is important, and it's important for uh, the world. I, the, your your Russia story reminds me of similar experiences in Singapore, where I'd go to Singapore and work with students, and and people knew that I liked to ask questions, and they would say, "Well, Singaporean students won't answer your questions, Dave." Or, and and uh, and so we um, we carry a lot of this stuff. Uh, uh, around with us? Well, I think part of it is, um, uh, and I just, I came back from Russia, you know, the next day I visited a woman's prison because I'm involved with uh, anti-recidivism stuff too, and then I yeah. went and I just got back from doing a uh, off-site with a, uh, a Midwest law firm with about 220 lawyers, and I did a keynote, and I did a uh, uh, I, I facilitated a panel of CEOs, and what was interesting because I live in Los Angeles, and uh, I it was fascinating, at least in this audience of Midwest attorneys yep. and the Russians. I said, you know, I, <laughs> I think I'm more Russian and more Midwestern than I am LA because uh, uh, you're reserved and you're discerning. You're not being judgmental or critical. It's just that you're waiting to see if another person's going to try and manipulate you, or sell you, or do something. And uh, and I actually like that, and I can see why when someone smiles too quickly, especially if they're trying to sell you something, you're thinking, we're not friends. What are you smiling at? And And I really liked that feeling. They weren't cold. They were just reserved. But I, uh, I really, uh, I really like that. Well, and it's it's special when people who are reserved uh, let you in. Yeah, and, absolutely. And 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 and, and, sh- and share from a from a deeper place that it that that feels feels special as opposed to people who are kind of their normal mode is is uh, um, being open like that. Yes, I I'm go yeah, ahead. No, no. I, well, anyway, I was just um, um, it, it, on the show. We so we emphasize uh, experiences where where people do open up. Where somehow, and I, actually, I was uh, I was reading your Wikipedia uh, bio to get some stuff that wasn't in the the one that we posted, and um, um, and so we you know, we you know so the whole new engineer explores uh, unleashing experiences where people have the courage to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do, and it helps them um, um, step out of their their shell. And I I noticed uh, in 2016 you were doing a show, uh, um, you know, bringing Steve Jobs back to life and and exploring what it meant to be a visionary. What was that about? Well, what happened is. Um, and it's a woo-woo term, so I'll say it, but we'll quickly get away from it. Uh, uh, people tell me that I'm a people hacker and that I can channel them. So one of the ways that I would get through to severely suicidal people 
uh, you know, who had been yep. who had seen multiple doctors, multiple hospitalizations, is I learned to be innovative, and I could tell that when I was more sort of academic, I could see in their eyes uh, as if they were saying, "Nice try, doc, but you missed." And uh, and so what happened is what I learned learned as I mentioned is to go inside. Yeah. I look into their eyes, and uh, and one of the things that I started saying to them is, uh, you know, because they're a little bit cynical because you know they're, they're told to go see it yet another doctor, yet another, yeah, yeah. And so I looked into to their eyes, and I would say, if it's okay with you, I'm not going to give you any advice or solutions that you're not going to follow through on. So you don't have to come back and tell me why you didn't do that. Would that be okay? <laughs> And they would look at me like, what? I said, yeah, would that be okay? I'm not going to do that. And so and they looked at me with a, I could see in their eyes, you got my attention, Doc. And then I have a way of leaning in, and I said, what I am going to do is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to hang out with you and keep you company there because you've been there too many nights at 3 in the morning and disappointed uh, uh, that you were still alive at 7. And I don't want you to be there alone. Would that be okay? They just started crying. And so I learned to be able to look at the world through other people's eyes, something else. And then I'll mention the Steve Jobs thing. I was a consultant to the O.J. Simpson trial with the prosecution because I could sit in the courtroom, close my eyes for 10 seconds, open them up, and see the courtroom from anybody's point of view. And then I would suggest to the prosecution, you might try this to engage the jury. So, uh, you know, I don't bring it up that much because they lost. And uh, uh, but but some of the things, one thing that they didn't use is I said, this DNA evidence is too you know complex. Show a barcode from a Coca-Cola can because the barcode looks like DNA and you trust that more than you trust the uh, cashier at your supermarket. They didn't use that. Something they did use. And this is how my mind thinks. I, I don't think it's. I think it's simple, but hopefully it's not simplistic. I said, okay, when the jury goes into deliberation and you don't have any control over them, how would you control them? And I thought, well, it would be good to haunt them. So what I said to Marsha Clark is make sure that in your closing argument somewhere you play the 911 tapes of Nicole Brown Simpson, you know, talking to the police uh, saying, O.J. is at the back of my place, can you please come over? And she's crying, uh, I, I, because I thought, let that be amongst the last things that you hear, you know, the voice of someone talking about the person who killed them. And so um, so I was able to look at, the, uh, look at the courtroom from anybody's point of view, from either mm-hmm. Judge Ito's, from witnesses' points of view. And so then uh, getting back to Steve Jobs, uh, I, I was giving a series of talks to CEOs uh, at uh, this organization uh, uh, that has CEO roundtables, and I was getting away with talking to them about how to listen, but they really didn't care about it. And so <laughs> I thought, okay, uh, this is too much heavy lifting. Although I'm revisiting it now that you know Russia yeah. says you know we want more of this. Yeah. So, but in sort of the transactional bottom line, you know, cut to the chase. Don't give me so much soft stuff. World of CEOs, uh, I uh, I changed. What I realized is 
if I could figure out how do you create gotta have it, you don't have to sell anything to anyone. And so I gave a talk next. So I was getting four threes out of fives, which was good for the listening thing. Uh, and, but then I gave a talk called Creating Gotta Have It. Uh, and a couple of the CEOs said to me, you just figured out the secret of, of uh, Apple and Steve Jobs. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, he had an ability to see and build products so that when they're introduced, people line up around Apple stores saying, I got to have it. And so I'll give you the formula, which people who are listening, if you're an engineer, if you're in education, if you're anything, if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to get through to your spouse or kids, the four-step formula for got to have it is what you want to trigger in the other person is woe, W-H-O-A, wow, W-O-W, hmm, H-M-M-M, yes. Woe, wow, hmm, yes. And woe is where they think, I can't believe what I just saw, heard, read, or felt. So with my suicidal patients, when they felt less alone in their despair, they couldn't believe that they felt less alone. And then the wow is that's astonishing, amazing, unbelievable. And then the hmm is this is too good to ignore. This is too good not to use. And then the yes is I figured out how to use it. And so when I was doing when I so I uh, and so what happened is I kind of morphed into playing Steve Jobs, and I would I would basically uh, I knew the history, but I would sort of channel him coming back to Apple at 1997 and turning it around uh, through 2007, I think with the introduction of the iPhone. Yep. And, um, and so I, I would just tell the story from his point of view. So one part that I think is kind of funny, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I, and, and if, you, if you just uh, look at YouTube, I got all these videos of me dressed up like him. But one of the ways... I would get people's attention because we talked about you got to get people's attention at first. Uh, one of the ways I would often introduce thing I would uh, I would I would show a video of him and a dedication to him before I came on stage, and then I come on stage and I'd say um, about the a hole thing. Uh, I suppose I was an a hole uh, early in Apple because you know when you're a little bit of an outsider and you're worth over a hundred million dollars. Uh, you know, you have an attitude about you, and you know, and, and regarding Steve Wozniak, anyone who walks around with more than five pencils in their pocket is asking for it. They're asking to be laid out. Uh, but then what happened is I left Apple and I came back, but here's what you need to know about your founders or CEOs and why they sometimes can come off as a-holes. They do that because one of the most difficult things to do in life is to sustain focus. And everything in the world is grabbing at you to pull you off focus, not to mention what's going on inside your head pulling you off focus. Now, there may be some CEOs or people you know who are very smart who are actual a-holes, meaning they take delight in it, but if... If you can relate to this, that what you're trying to do is hold on to and maintain your focus in a world that conspires to distract you, 
you might want to say that to people ahead of time and say, for the next couple days, don't say hello to me, don't smile at me, don't get your feelings hurt if I don't reciprocate, uh, because I'm trying to figure something out and I don't quite have it yet. So does any, can, you, can you track any of this, Dave? No, this is, this is great. This is all great stuff. I'm just, uh, I'm just sitting in it, and uh, uh, and it's so important to that. Um, it's so important to engineering education. It's so important to the way the world has changed. And and you know, a lot of a lot of engineering schools talk about. Um, you know, we need the next. We need not the next bench engineer. We need the next Steve Jobs, um, who wasn't a trained engineer. But we need we need whatever that is. And uh, I think your uh, your descriptions resonating with our. Our listeners, uh, uh, I wrote it down. A bunch of people wrote it down. Uh, it's great stuff. I think we need to. We're a little long. Let's take a break and come back, and um, we need to hear some 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 more of what's been happening to Mark Goulston, Dr. Mark Goulston, um since last time he was on the show. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with with our special guest Mark Goulston. Stay with us, and uh, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next, but it's going to be fun. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership facilitation to help transform you. Um, yourself or your educational organization or institution at www.3joy.com. And uh, we're back with Dr. Mark Goulston. And before the break, we were talking about a potpourri of uh, um, cool things that Mark's been up to since he was last on the show. We were just talking about, uh, Mark, we were just talking about your your Steve Jobs show and the uh, gotta have it. But but you were saying that uh, kind of um, the... An interesting story connected back to uh, your 
your gig in uh, Russia. Yeah, and this is the importance of and the power of getting where someone's coming from. So uh, I was being interviewed by a reporter for RBC, uh, which is, I think, their biggest business publication. And uh, uh, and he his, and the reporter's name was Elia. And he gets on the phone. And he says, "Dr. Goldstone, we want to talk to you about your, your books." And I said, "Elia, Elia, uh, before we get started, let me tell you what my goal for this interview is." And you could tell that he's bracing. Oh, here comes the pushy American. And I said, my single goal and only goal for this interview is that you get either promoted or you get a raise because of it and you not get criticized. The challenge will be I can be a little bit discursive in different directions, whether you can scrape it together and make an article, but that's my only goal. And the result of that, it became uh, a front page feature story with two pictures uh, and it's you know normally stories you know get 25 30,000 views this has gotten 480,000 views and um, plus it was a sensationalistic title I mean uh, I love the Russians uh, in terms of they, they like to push the envelope so the title of the article is my name and it said Managers hate the word people. <laughs> and I talk about, uh, this will be interesting too, and then, and then I'm going to demonstrate something with you that's going to crack you wide open, Dave. It's good, trust okay. me, it's good radio. All right. But uh, I, here's a good distinction between leaders, managers, coaches, and mentors, and I hope people listening will, will uh, find some value in it. I realize that a lot of times people... Uh, will sometimes love their leaders and love their mentors. They're kind of okay about their managers and, you know, and, and a good coach they're appreciative of. And what I realize is one of the reasons you sometimes love your leader is if your leader has a clear vision of the future and you get to be part of going into the future, uh, and, if, and especially if your leader is not abusive, you just love that. I mean, you, you love being on that ride. Uh, what I realized about managers is managers are about results. And leaders can often you know, connect with their people because they don't have to manage them. And, uh, and managers are judged by their results. And here was the breakthrough I had about coaches and executive coaching. What I realized is that uh, coaching, the goal of it is to make a person who's valuable more manageable because they're distracting because of some of the ways they behave. And so rather than sugarcoating it as, you know, we're here to help you develop your skills and your interpersonal skills, I think if you were brought in to coach someone in this fits, you could say, hey, I'm here to make you more manageable because you have value to the company, but you're costing it because you can be a real pain in the you-know-where. So uh, are we clear on that? And if you don't think that's what it's about, let's, let's go ask the people that hired me. And so, uh, but I'm more of a mentor. I mentor probably 35 people around the world at various frequencies. And what I realized is what a mentor does, uh, and, and this is how, if I'm hired to be a mentor, so someone who doesn't need to be, uh, you know, need, need to uh, uh, 
be rehabilitated, I said, here's the deal. Um, uh, on your company's dime, I'm here to help you fulfill your potential for the company, but on their dime, I'm going to help you fulfill your potential, period. And that's one of the reasons people, I think, like or love mentors. I had seven. Uh, they've all passed away. My last was this fellow, Warren Bennis, a big leadership guy. Yep. Uh, and, and, I, and I miss all of them, and I loved all of them, and I think it was reciprocated. But a lot of it is because they were, they were focused on my fulfilling my potential, and they were focused on my future, helping me land there. Uh, and then when I ran into obstacles, they would support me, not from their left brain, but more from their right brain. And so I, I felt kind of supported in a loving way. And so, and so I've kind of morphed into being that kind of mentor, which I love doing, and that's, you know, that's one of my main focuses. I'm, I, uh, one of my focuses is mentoring founders to making it to CEO after investors come in and they uh, wonder whether the founder can make the transition because a lot of times founders aren't CEOs. But I want to demonstrate something to your listeners uh, with you, and I want, I want to try an experiment. So okay. in my book, especially Just Listen, I talk about the difference between listening to someone and listening into someone. Mm. So if I've listened to you, you know, you're asking me some great questions and, uh, and when, you're not asking me many because you're listening and, uh, uh, and, and there's a part of you that's saying, well, you know, these are, these are good answers and good information for our listeners. So that's listening to you. But tell me if this is correct. If I listen into you, Dave, what I'm picking up is how you want to bridge the gap between technology and humanity. And that if technology is just left to its own devices, it's like turbocharging a toddler's tricycle. And there needs to be something in which technology doesn't abandon the fact that it's not serving its own ends, that it's serving humankind. And you're really dedicated to that. Uh, and, uh, and that's one of your essential purposes, to bring that out into the world so that technology just doesn't become this you know, runaway kind of thing that is so smitten with itself that it really doesn't serve humanity to the best that it can. Is any of that accurate? I think parts of it are the emphasis on um, – I'm actually um, – yeah, I'm not as driven by uh, – the, the, the people part of it is important to me and the um, – and that the – Sometimes, um, uh, tech, well, certainly technical education and technical organizations are are not often the best at the people at at um, at developing their their people. And so, and I and actually, your description, I would I would I, 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 your description of mentor and and. Uh, bringing pe- uh, bringing out the full potential in people resonates strongly with me, and so I, um, I'm driven um, that engineering education and and that people be invited into um, 
technology and engineering um, that also care about uh, the people side. I, I don't know that I'm so worried about, I, I'm not a technology worry word. I'm actually more of a technology optimist. Um, um, but I but I am concerned about the humanity of engineering organizations and the engineering education itself as um, being not so humane. So, so there's, uh, let me turn a little bit on you. Say more about uh, sure. the roots of that concern about mm. technology, uh, not really either ignoring or abandoning the people side. There, there, why is that something that's so compelling to you? Well, and I, I've already, um, <laughs> by acknowledging the first um, the first chapter of the book that I hadn't read, I actually I, I bought the book and I saw or I saw the table of contents and I just laughed um, about um, seeking seeking approval from a parent being one of the self defeating behaviors that you addressed in in that early early book of yours. My my dad's an engineer, and, or uh, he's still alive, and um, and so I think that the um, that some of that some of that concern goes goes back to um, um, some of the ways in which um, my dad had difficulties expressing his emotions um, um, and appreciation for his children. Mm-hmm. So let me share an anecdote about uh, my dad that might ring a bell, a touch of okay. court for you. Sure, sure. So both my parents have passed away and my father passed away in 95 and he was... Uh, he might have been a little bit on the you know the spectrum, a little bit Asperger uh, kind of thing. Uh, he was great with numbers, and you know again not that great with emotion. And, and he had a photographic memory, but he developed Alzheimer's. So there was a point at which my mother called me from Florida and said, "You got to come and help because uh, your dad's driving me and him crazy because he's spending all day trying to remember everything he for- he's forgot." And the more he tries, the worse it is. So I go there, uh, kind of on a mother of mercy mission, and I'm there trying to coax my dad and trying to, you know, get him to, they lived on a golf course, to to go outside or go for a walk. And the night before uh, he, uh, uh, I was going to leave, he looked at me and he looked at my mother and then he looked at me and he said, do me a favor, don't visit again so soon. Leave me alone. Both of you just leave me alone. And so I thought, wow, mission failed. And I didn't sleep that night. And the next morning, uh, before I was to go to the plane, I was looking at the galleys of Get Out of Your Own Way, the book that you just picked up. And there's a chapter in that on uh, trying to change other people. And at the end of each chapter, there's these little insights. And the end of that, I think is uh, uh, don't try to change, don't try to change others. Accept people as they are and hope they change, instead of not accepting them at all until they change. And so I'm there, and uh, there's my dad looking out, kind of at, staring out, you know, from the porch. And so, so I let go of trying to change him. I put the book down. And, and the tone is more important than the words I'm about to say. And I looked at him and I said, uh, so, Dad, how's it going? 
And my dad, I'd never seen cry, and he was also a kind of person who didn't like illnesses. And I think 30 years before, he had colon cancer, and my mother said, don't tell him he has the big C, because he'll, he'll, he'll obsess about it. You know, he's taking treatment, and, you know, and, and, and they did a procedure, and he was cured of it. And so he was kind of depression age, a person, you know, who felt out of control with doctors and hospitals and that sort of thing. So you get that mindset. So, so I'd said to him, so how's it going? So then he looks at me, then he looks away, then he looks at me, and he wasn't really introspective. He was a great problem solver, but he wasn't introspective. Yeah. And then he looks down, and his eyes start to water, and he says, I never thought it would end this way. Mm. So I just get emotional. You may be getting emotional. And, uh, uh, and this is the power of empathy. This is the power of getting where someone's coming from. Uh, and then he looked at me, and he was real puzzled. He, uh, his face was all squinched up like one of those Apple dolls you get up in Maine. And he looked at me, and he said, Mark, what, what is Alzheimer's disease? And then I told him, well, you know, you lose your memory. You can remember things from years ago, but you lose your memory for today. And then he looked at me. He was concentrating with whatever brain stuff he had left in, up there. And he looked at me and he said, do I have it? And I said, I don't know. I mean, you know, you had a photographic memory. And, uh, uh, and I didn't know whether it was, it was mostly depression or whatever. Uh, and then my dad and I went for a walk. And I'll tell you what's behind this. So for you engineers, you know, who need a dollop of science, what I'm talking about and what I tried to do with you with listening into you, and this is new since Talking to Crazy, my most recent book, is I didn't re realize this at the time I wrote Talking to Crazy or Just Listen, but uh, there is a reciprocal relationship between cortisol, which is connected to stress, and oxytocin, which is connected to bonding. Yeah. And so when you increase someone's bonding, oxytocin, their cortisol and stress go down. That's why when people feel less alone, they feel less stressed. And one of the reasons men live less than women is that when men are stressed, their cortisol goes way up, but men pull away from other people. They feel vulnerable. They don't want other people to see that they feel weak. And then they come up with an answer and come back and they take the hill. And that's good, except what happens is that uh, that whole process increases blood pressure, heart disease, strokes. So that take the hill mentality maybe can help in a crisis, but it's not good in the long term. Whereas women know that if they can bond, if they can just get stuff off their chest and they can have an enlightened husband who doesn't try to you know, shush them or thwart their getting stuff off their chest, what happens is women know instinctively that if they can raise their oxytocin and bond, the stress will go away. The problem is that when women are venting at us, it raises our cortisol. We try and shut them down because we feel out of control, which then raises their cortisol, and it's a big mess. So if any of you engineers listening to this or any of you men are listening to this and have this issue with a woman in your life who you love but can get emotional, uh, here's, some take here's a takeaway. Next time that happens, 
uh, instead of looking at her like a deer in the headlights of a car, let her finish. Uh, and there's something that I call the FAD diet. And FAD stands for frustrated, angry, disappointed. So let her finish. And instead of getting defensive or telling her, you better get a hold of yourself, let her finish and then lean in, look into her eyes, you know, uh, non-confrontationally and say, um, what I got from what you were saying is that you're either frustrated, angry, or just plain disappointed in me. Can you tell me about those? And then if you lean in and you enable her to do that, and we call that mediated catharsis, so you're mediating, helping her get stuff off her chest, and if you can do it non-defensively, and she does that, and then you follow up with, um, tell me about an incident of me at my worst, and she'll further open up. Uh, what'll happen is sometimes the, these women in your life, they'll start giggling because you're enabling them to get stuff off their chest, which enables them to bond with you, which rises, makes their oxytocin rise. You're not shutting them down, so uh, which would cause their cortisol to rise. And, and what's happening is if you can allow yourself to see that, uh, wow, not only do we dodge a bullet, we actually just had an amazing conversation. You may even get a little tweak of your own oxytocin, uh, and you might get lucky that night. <laughs> uh, Could you follow any of that? Dave? No, I'm I'm following. I'm, I'm and I'm uh, and I'm 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 certainly listening too. I guess I'm and I'm. Uh, I'm, I was relating to, um, uh, you know, so so much of what what you say and and the things that you write about are consistent with my experience in becoming a coach, mentor, whatever you want to call it, and and um, and the skills of that listening into and and you know listening, you know, so as a, as an engineer, I was trained to listen to the content, to the rational content, as a as a coach, I was trained to listen more to the emotion and and the body feelings and other things that are sort of not part of an engineering conversation. And it just seemed to me that um, I took training as a coach in, in, um, when I left the university in 2010. So it hasn't been that long, but it just felt like it, it felt like um, I, I felt cheated, actually. I felt like, well, why did this is sort of human being 101 stuff. Why? Why didn't anyone tell me about this stuff back when I was in my twenties? And it seems so central. And I've I've been I've been frustrated because it seems to me it's um, we're we're not just failing engineers. We're failing you know those lawyers you were talking. About, they they need these skills. The those Russians need these skills. The Singaporeans need these skills. In fact, the world that we live in, these skills are more needed than ever. And yet we're not um, we're not teaching this stuff in school. And I've been kind of sitting in why why don't we why why don't we learn to have these kinds of conversations these deep and important kinds of conversations as part of our education? Well, the reason a lot of people don't listen and they don't empathize is because there's a there's something that I I call uh, uh, the psychological silo, 
And there's a number of people who are good at problem solving in which their area of competence sits seamlessly on top of feeling confident, sits seamlessly uh, on top of their feeling in control. And so often they're afraid that if they listen openly or they inquire about something that pulls them outside their area of competence, confidence, and control, that they'll, they'll be up a creek without a paddle. And what I was, uh, when I gave this keynote to this lawyer's group, which totally related to this, I said, there's a grand opportunity when you listen into someone and they bring up something that you don't know. In fact, yes. they, will, they will like this answer better than what you do know, is you let them finish and you say, what you just said is so important and I know so little about it that I don't want to cheat you out of the best answer I can find, which I can't give you now. The question is, do you want me to go and make the effort to find the best answer for what you just said? Because I'm not going to give you an answer that's just shooting from the hip. And when you can lean into that, yeah. the, the amount of respect that you get, and one of the reasons uh, you know, a lot of the male lawyers are saying we talk too much, well, one of the reasons you're talking over people is you don't want them to bring up something that you're not competent or confident. And uh, you know, we, we can say that's one of the issues of our president is that he talks over people, and one of the reasons may be that he, he, he doesn't want people to bring up things that he... he doesn't have confidence or competence in. But I, I want to make sure we have time for the Prison Letters podcast. Well, and and I just want to, um, and um, I think we're, and I think we will, we, we should have, we should have time. I, I want to connect the dots. It seems, I think what you've just said is really important. The psychological silo, I think, is part of it. But I actually think that underneath all, certainly higher education is a, is a misunderstanding, certainly professional education, there's a misunderstanding of what good practitioners actually do. So there's a sense, uh, and it goes back to uh, Don Shun's book back in the 80s uh, at MIT, uh, and he made this distinction between, uh, it was, the book was called The Reflective Practitioner, and he made this distinction between t- technical rationality as the model of practice where we learn the basics of some field and we apply it essentially your psychological silo that that's what that's how we teach practice is you learn this known stuff and then you apply it and so that's your comfort zone and that but then when he noticed when you watch practitioners whether they were architects engineers psychiatrists what have you that the what they engage in is what he called conversation with the situation and he said that the the mainstay of practice is conversational skill and that we we spend we not only do we not spend any time on it but in things like engineering education we give it short shrift and and we call it soft skills and denigrate it and it just seems to me that's to the extent you know the and so you're sort of you're hitting you know sort of the ant the antipode of technical rationality is to be empathetic the technical opposite and rationality is um to this the sense of of no, we actually don't know things, and that the way we interrogate what we do and don't know is through really high, uh, high-performing conversations. Comment. No, that, that's uh, that, uh, that's exactly true. And one of my other favorite quotes comes from Wilfred Bion. He's a British psychoanalyst, and he said the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. 
Because when you listen with memory, you have an old agenda that you're plugging people into. When you listen with desire, you have a present or future agenda. But you're not listening uh, to the people, which, uh, which does remind me of this prison po- podcast, prison letters podcast, which uh, I think I'm in the 15th episode, uh, because you, you read the book, Get Out of Your Own Way. That's found its way into jails and prisons around the country, and I've gotten a couple hundred letters from inmates, and each of the prison letters podcasts, uh, I read one letter, and then I spontaneously... Uh, go into the mind of the person who's writing me and even the feelings uh, uh, of the person writing me. Um, uh, There's one, if you check out Prison Letters, it's on iTunes and Stitcher. There's one called Papa, Can You Hear Me? And it was a letter from a young man who burglarized the home. And he said, when I uh, uh, read your chapter about parents, the chapter one, and get out of your own way, he said, I went back to my cell and cried and cried and cried. And so I read that letter. And then I go off and I said, I can imagine that when this young man burglarized the home, when he was a little high on drugs, and when he saw pictures of a happy family and a loving dad, it must have just driven him crazy. And then I mentioned some issues with my own dad. So I, I hope people... Yeah if they like kind of not just what we're talking about, but how we're talking about things, that they'll check out uh, Prison Letters podcasts and hopefully subscribe and uh, you know write some reviews. That would be wonderful. Mark, we're towards the uh, end of the show. Uh, how can people find out uh, more about your various activities? Uh, well, at Mark Goulston, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-O-S-T-O-N. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of Twitter followers, uh, 470,000 or something, so don't take it too personally if I can't get back to you, although you can send me, I guess, direct messages. And then there's markgoulston.com is sort of my thought leader page, and then I, I do have a company called the Goulston Group, and I have a team, goulstongroup.com or markgoulston.com. Uh, and you can you know, find out the prison letters, uh, just prison letters uh, on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can check out all my books at Amazon. And oh, one last thing, I have a syndicated column through business journals, which goes to 43 city business journals. And if you like any of what we're talking about, I give away all my intellectual property in that. So if you go to business journals, Goulston, uh, you'll find all my columns. And I feature people, uh, Doug, uh, uh, fe- featuring Doug Conant uh, next. He was the CEO of uh, Campbell Soup. But if you like any of this stuff and find it helpful, go visit that and uh, uh, you know, write to me. Thanks, Mark. It's great, great to have you on the show again. Great to be back. Thank you. Been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Mark Golston. Help transform higher education. Help unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.